This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. FX's Fleischman is in Trouble, streaming November 17th only on Hulu. like you're very cool and i said to say i don't know if i see like you having that moment in the studio where you're sort of pulling your hair out and you're like ah oh, like how am i gonna make this what it is in my head or, oh, it's not coming out right come on sam or get your shit oh, together man and like do you have those moments where man it freaking- gets so brutal in the studio it's all pain in the studio <laughs> it is all pain tell me about it days with no sleep losing weight joint cramps, panic moments where I'm like, this thing sucks and then I'm going to do something rash to it. And now I'm really fucked because like, I don't know what's going to happen with this piece anymore. And then I look back at my pictures of what I did three weeks ago on the same piece. I was like, man, it was done three weeks ago. What did I just do? I just killed this thing. Oh, it's all pain. That's why I'm so cool when I'm not in the studio. (laughs) My man Sanford Biggers is one of the great modern visual artists around. A man who works in many, many mediums and is always compelling. But even though I know Sanford pretty well and I love spending time with him, I don't always understand his art. In fact, I usually don't really understand what he's getting at, even though I like what I'm looking at. I had to see if I could bridge the divide between the brother I know and the artist who the art world adores, but who I don't totally get. And I think in this hour-plus conversation, we do get there. It's Sanford Biggers on Torre Show. So, I've known you for a long time. <laughs> I like you. When we sit and talk, we always vibe. I like your art. I don't get it. <laughs> I go to your shows and I'm like, okay, that's cool. I don't get it. Like, could you give me like an overall primer of like what you're trying to say? Like mm. in, as, as in a general way. Because you do mm-hmm. painting, sculpture, video, performance. Like, you do all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Could, you might come with a quilt. Mm-hmm. You might come with a gigantic uh, Fat Albert. You might come with a tree that has a piano breaking down in the middle of it. I'm like, what is he saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. What am I saying? I think I'm trying to say a lot. And that's why things get a little confusing for people. But I would say the common thread, regardless of the medium, is always sort of a look back at history and finding ways to complicate or clarify things that weren't mentioned when you learned about that historical event in school. In other words... I personally grew up with an alternative history happening at my household because there wasn't stuff about the African diaspora that was taught at the schools I went to. 
So you get back home and you're learning about Sojourner Truth and you're learning about Mahalia Jackson or you're learning about Charles Drew and you're learning about all these other things that they're not going to teach you even at the private schools. Um, and then I went to Morehouse College and same thing is happening there. You're learning the mainstream educational system program and pedagogy and you're also learning all these other facts that are not purposefully, you know, not in the curriculum at these places. So I find that my work is looking at that. And that's sort of how it started going along these historical lines. So let's say Fat Albert, for example, an inflatable Fat Albert, face down. Gigantic. Gigantic. You know, if you stood him up, he'd be 30 feet tall, <laughs> taking his last breaths. That talks about a lot of things. It talks about media assassination. It talks about uh, the pieces called La Aquan on top of it all, which makes it even more complicated because that references the famous um, statue that is in the uh, Vatican right now that's been there for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and so it's talking about the messenger being killed. Fat Albert was the messenger uh, uh, to, uh, to give moralistic uh, uh, answers and guidelines in the hood, you know, and now he's laying face down because his own creator has assaulted many people. That's very complicated. But at the same time, you have Black Lives Matter happening and you have images in the media of black men laying face down. So all those things are conflating. And I'm not trying to give you one simple out or one simple answer or response by putting that piece out there. I'm actually causing you to think about all those things and engage in the same pathos that I feel when I'm looking at all this stuff happening. These are representations of me somehow. And it's all fucked up. Can I say that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and that's just one piece. And then you also mentioned Blossom that's at the Brooklyn Museum with a tree, the piano, that a tree growing out of a piano, uprooting the piano, basically. And as you walk closer, it plays my own rendition of Strange Fruit. And the piece for me came from my reading about and learning about the Gina Six incident that happened in Louisiana. When you've got these, you know, black kids, this, this conflation of events that happened at the school where one black child wants to sit at the tree where all the popular white kids are sitting. And he asked one of the teachers, can I sit there? The teacher responds, yes, of course. Why would you even ask that? The kid goes and sits down. Then all of a sudden the white kids start to leave. The next day, everyone comes to school and now there's nooses hanging from that tree. This was, you know, 2008, 2009, yeah, right? Year, yeah. Um, and right after that, you get nooses hanging off the classrooms at Columbia University, you know, or, or mm -hmm. the Office of Black Professors and so on. So this stuff is all happening. The piece itself, it's not directly pointing to that, but it's inspired by that. But it's also to further complicate it again. There's this notion that, you know, the tree is the site for all of this lynching, but at the same time, the tree is the site for enlightenment. In many cultures, remember the Buddha finds his enlightenment underneath the tree. So now that piano represents a body that might have been lynched, but it also represents a body that's also looking for transcendence. All these, these things are happening. It's a, you know, a type of poetic dance, I think, with all these different allusions and references that are in the work. And it's never simple and clean. It's always complicated. It's always multi-layered. That is what is consistent. But so is history. And that's what I'm touching it when I'm using all these different medium to use an antique quilt and paint on it and to spray paint on it. Is that a black man defacing Americana and nostalgia or am I embellishing? Am I putting patchwork 
on a piece that's over 100 years old, thus creating a palimpsest of American history right there, literally right there by the markings on that object. You had one piece called BAM, Hmm. where you or somebody was firing bullets at a little wooden sculpture of a black man, which, I mean, I surely got that and Mm -hmm. I felt that. Mm -hmm. Um, That was really powerful. Sure. Well, you know, that's the first read right there. Yes, I'm taking an African sculpture, I'm taking it to a shooting range and literally sculpting it with different caliber weapons. That's the first thing that you would see. Um, I didn't pull the trigger. Actually, one of the people in my crew pulls the trigger. And that goes into some of the underpinnings of the work. If you look back at these African objects as power objects. What does that mean? A power object. um, Think about when you go to an encyclopedic museum and you go to the African section or the pre-Columbian section or... And you see these uh, wooden figures that have nails and shards of glass sticking in their bodies. Those were used as power objects to show the power of a group of people, also to scare away enemies and people who wanted to try to harm that group of people. Um, They're often used as spiritual devices as well. And the most powerful of those are never even seen. They're deep in the back of a shrine. You know they're there, but you're not even allowed to put your eyes on them. So those are objects that are imbued with a certain amount of power um, and erratic nature. So for me to take those objects, which also have a very important part in art history, because those are the exact objects that influenced Picasso and Matisse. So all the stuff you've been learning about, about uh, the Cubists, all that stuff was coming from their versions and their influence, being influenced by these African objects. So for me to take them, I am on some level destroying this object, but then I take the remnants and I cast it back in bronze. So we're going back into art history again transmigrating through different materials, something that was now vulnerable is now cast in bronze, making it permanent. Um, I'm also shooting art history. I'm also shooting down the Picasso notions and these ideas of modernism that were basically stolen and became popularized. In this sense, I'm taking that object and reclaiming them and doing what I say is a postmodern treatment to that art history. The Fed Albert piece is really powerful and interesting and dynamic. Can you can you talk me through from conception to would you say fabrication or completion? Mm-hmm. That so actually I had because it's I, not just it's not and and some of the great art that I really admire. I noticed it's not just an intellectual creation, but there's also an engineering feat. Sure. That is really astounding sure. and, and, and compelling also. Mm-hmm. And that envelops both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought of doing a gigantic inflatable Fat Albert that I wanted to have standing in Central Park, basically <laughs> bobbing around. This was in the, the early 2000s. I was asked to... This just comes to you? Let's get a gigantic Fat Albert? Yeah. Why Fat Albert? Yeah. Um, I mean, we are about the same age. That was a big Saturday morning cartoon when we were little. Mm-hmm. But there was also the Jackson 5 cartoon and Rocky and Bullwinkle and Speed Racer. and Yeah, there was a certain uh, degree of levity and fun mm-hmm. that I thought Fat Albert could represent specifically at that time when I thought of this piece, which was like probably 2001, 2002. And... Um, I was asked to make a proposal for this commission, and I didn't get the proposal, but that's what the idea was, this huge, frolicking, bouncing Fat Albert. 
It's also a very surreal idea to see if you came to Central Park to see this bouncing black dude in the middle of the park. Like, what do you associate with that? It's just sort of weird and funny. Now, 15, almost 20 years later, I'm sitting around and Fat Albert came to mind again. It was really sort of a reaction to all, you know, the breaking news about Bill Cosby at the time. And I thought about what that does to his legacy, his filmic legacy, because you have to remember how powerful and important he was in terms of media representation for 30 years. I mean, it's crazy. Um, yeah, more, um, yeah. more than that. More than that. More than that. He was big in the 60s. 50s uh, with Robert Culp and I Spy. Wasn't that late 50s, the black and white? Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. So knowing all that and seeing, okay, well, that's pretty much gone now. Yeah. So that's the first thing that came to mind. And then I was um, also going back and forth to Italy a lot, and I was looking at a lot of objects out there. And the Lacuan is this story that is very important in art history because it depicts um, a priest named Lacuan who is being punished by Athena because he is the one who was um, warning the Trojans about the incoming invasion of Greeks. Okay. So you know all those phrases, don't look uh, a gift horse in the mouth and never trust, um, um, I'm forgetting, there's a cliche of trusting Greeks and not trusting Greeks. These all are deriv derivative of that story. So this priest warns the Trojans. Athena protects the Greeks. Athena punishes Lachwan, the priest, because of warning this, uh, about this invasion. And she punishes him by killing his sons. Um, and then there's another story that he is being punished by yet another god and being blinded because he fornicated with his wife near a statue of that god. So there's everyone's everyone's got it out for Lachwan, basically. But he is the messenger. He is a messenger trying to warn people and save people, but he's being punished for his good deeds. So I'm starting to think of Fat Albert now being punished for his good deeds. So that's where some of that thought processing came from. Now, the collateral associations that come along with that when you see a black man face down, that's the reality that we also live with here in America, too, seeing that imagery and sort of living with that reality. So all of that stuff is conflating in this object. And at a certain point, you can't control it, you know? And I was feeling out of control. I was feeling viscerally upset by all of that stuff. And I made this piece and put it out in the world. And there was reactions ranging all over the spectrum related to that piece. And at a certain point, you have to stand back and let the piece author itself. And over time, the meanings and associations with that exact work have changed. Even, you know, five, what was that, five or six years ago when I made it? Every couple of months, there's a new read on that piece because something that's happened in living culture. So in some respects, the object itself is evolving. It's still evolving. Is It's interesting that you are able to see your own work evolving in the public world. I would be like, no, it's supposed to mean this, even if it's a set of things. And you're right. like, now it belongs to all of you. And if you want to assign a new meaning to it, that's what you see of it. Well, we were talking about history to start off with. Every few years, you learn about something that we held as a historical fact that is now debunked. Mm. That history no longer is true, which means everything you thought of as your reality is actually not that reality. That's exactly how you have to release the work because you can't control the meaning of it too. You know, so let's say, for example, we're living in the moment of extreme gaslighting. Things mm. that we thought were truths that we know are truths are being challenged so much so that you start to doubt the veracity of what you believe to be true. 
all that time. Our work can work the same way. Different people come into power, different zeitgeists come into the cultural context, all of a sudden the meaning of a word changes. So it's impossible to control it all. When you were talking about the intellectual conception of the piece, is that happening as you move through the day or is there like art time where you sit in the studio and you're intellectually conceiving and working through and like, oh, if I had Fat Albert lying down instead of standing, because Fat Albert standing up does not relate to Michael Brown unless somehow his hands are up in the air, mm-hmm. right? But Fat Albert lying down now does bring in the 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 fall and disgrace of Bill Cosby, um, Michael Brown, you know, and then the rest of the Black Lives Matter inspirations. Mm-hmm. And so is it just I'm sitting and thinking at my thinking time or just my mind is always going and working on stuff? It's more the latter. I think my mind is always working and going on things. Um, the most inspiring things happen to me just riding the train or walking down the street or turning on the radio or reading a phrase. Something clicks in my mind and I start free associating. And then I find a way to bring that free association into a form. Um, and I think this, this actually answers one of your earlier questions. The reasons I jump between so many different formats is because I don't see time and I don't see meaning as a linear construct. I see it as a simultaneous thing that has so many different offshoots. And my work literally represents that. So what you see one year, you might, see, you might not see again for another 10 years. But if you look collectively over my entire career, you'll see all the similar threads. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes 
celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. This mining of historical fact, this fucking with knowns and unknowns that we were taught, and now we have to unlearn. And I think what I want people to take away from that is two things. Once you have to dig, one, you have to dig deep and sift through the layers to find the meaning. And number two, things aren't always as they seem. And you have to take that outside of the museum or the gallery and apply that to your life so you don't make quick assumptions and snap judgments. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So when you have an idea, I want to do gigantic Fat Albert, and it'll be lying down. So then how do you move into, okay, how do we make this real? Um, you know, do we need rubber? Is there a certain art fabricator that mm-hmm. can like, okay, I could take on gigantic projects. So Kara Walker, you want to make a gigantic sphinx out of salt? I can do that. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, so-and-so wants to make a gigantic rubber. Da-da-da. I can do that. You want to make a big fat, mm-hmm. how does that go into, and where does the budget come from? Well, that's the tricky part, working the way I do, is um, literally having to find the materials and the processes that make the most sense with the idea I'm putting out. Um, For that specific piece, um, I'd already done research before on these inflatables because I made that proposal 10, you know, 15, 20 years prior. So I knew places that literally can take any design you give them, any pattern you give them, any form, and find a way to make an inflatable out of it. So... You know, that was fairly easy for me. That part was fairly easy. And that's really an interesting thing when it comes to, I think, the formal aspect of making work. And these are the challenges and the uh, puzzles and conundrums that I think are really the most interesting. We talk about the conceptual and political nature of my work, but the actual art making and the references to process and fabrication and the histories of those things is also a lot of fun. I consider that Fat Albert piece to be part of, if I were to say I have different lanes, that would be part of my pop lane. And so I'm using popular means of production to even do that. And by the way, I don't call it Fat Albert. I call it Fatal Bird. Fatal Bird. Fatal Bird. Fatal Bird. Why the Why the Bird? Bird. For Albert. Okay, just Fatal. cutting up the Albert. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's all in the spelling. Wait, when you're when you say multiple lanes, mm-hmm. so you have your pop lane, art historical lane, uh, diasporic lane, Afrofuturist lane, uh, intellectual art, uh, historical lane. 
And you don't set out to do, now I'm a new Afrofuturist lane. Like, it just no. comes to you and you at some point you notice, like, oh, I'm back at my Afrofuturist thing again. I'm there yeah. now I'm feeling yeah. my yeah, pop yeah. thing again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and well, I conflate them, too. I definitely, sure. you know, the longer I go at this, the more I start to just let them mix and commingle with each other. And we've had Kehende and Amy Sherald on this show. Mm -hmm. And those are two people who you know, I would recognize their piece across the room, mm -hmm. right? Because they have a signature that they're working with and that's who they are. Mm -hmm. I would not recognize a Sanford Biggers mm -hmm. until I read this. Oh, that, I, you know, and that's not a slight. It's just like mm -hmm. you don't have a signature that spans the medium, even though you do span medium. Is that purposeful that the work should be fluid enough that it, it looks many different ways, it feels many different ways? Yeah, because, you know, I think as an artist, I go through many different moods, and I think that's representative in how I go between medium. But at the same time, this is a big picture conversation, and my practice is a big picture practice. If you look at 30 years of work, you start to see, oh, wait a second, he actually did do a bunch of signature things spread out over a very long period, interspersed with other signature things. For example, I have a show coming up to the Bronx Museum opening in uh, two months. And it's around, you know, it's a collection of 70 to 80 paintings I've done on quilts. That's an entire body of work, an entire series that's been written about by scholars. Greg Tate is one of the contributors to the essays. Um, you know, Yale Press is putting out a book. You'll see those, you'll know those, and that would be a signature, something that you can read. The BAM series of bronzes. When you start to see a collection of all these bronze pieces that are missing legs and have bullet marks in them, that's a Sanford Biggers too. So you start to, over time, see those lanes express themselves in recognizable material. Mm. But I always wanted to avoid, I know it sounds strange and counterproductive <laughs> and counterintuitive in a lot of ways, but to make one hallmark signature object and then just do that a lot is not that interesting to me, personally for me. Yeah, um, I have no problem seeing other people do it, and I think they're great people doing that. Yeah. But that's just not my way of producing i do i do wonder if someone might get bored and like sort of financially successful enough at a certain way of doing things that sort of i'm locked into doing this and i would love to develop and change but i kind of can't because happens more than you know yeah happens more than people you know realize so i like to consider myself a free radical you never know what you're going to get but over time that becomes a thing of interest what's going to happen next What's it going to look like next? Um, and there are several artists who have done that type of, sure. you know, that approach before. And those are the artists that I love to read about because I'm like, damn, how do they like who? make those connections and get uh, Martin Kippenberger is one um, artist, Janine Anthony, David Hammonds, um, uh, Matthew Barney. Um, you know, there are many. Hearst, many of them. Damien Hurst. Um, Hurst. In a way, yeah. I mean, but there are signature things with Hearst. There but are that's, that, but that's over time, once again. Mm -hmm. You know, there's their pills. You know, there's the dots. You know, there's the formaldehyde. But, you know, any one of those in a room, you wouldn't have known. But, you know, he's also so big on the marketing and promoting of those things that that becomes its own thing, well, part of the practice. Yeah, that. let's talk about that because you got to play the game, mm -hmm. right? What is, what is that all about? Are you good at playing the game? No, oh, which game? 
the, the you know the art game and the promoting yourself because you have to promote yourself mm-hmm. apart from your pieces, right? So, um, yeah, I don't know that that's a hard one. I, I don't know how to answer that really. You got to realize that like for the first twenty years of my career, I was teaching. You know, I was teaching at Columbia for many years, Virginia Commonwealth University, Harvard. So Harvard, you know, university, I was teaching at all these places. So I wasn't really relying on income from the work, which allowed me the freedom to experiment in so many different areas and also not have to stick to necessarily one thing to be known for and known by and to make a living off of that. And I think that afforded me the, you know, um, wait, what was the question again? <laughs> It's a good answer. How do you play the game? Oh, the game part. Yes, right, 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 right. I mean, it's partly um, in interviews. It's partly in galleries. I imagine there must be some sort of, you know, like like interacting with certain sorts of people in certain sorts of ways. And Yeah, I mean, I think it also depends on what your goals are. I mean, there is the game you have to play if you want to be an extremely visible person with high visible notoriety. There's another game if you want to be in major collections. There's another game if you want to be in museums. And I think for me, my interest was to be in museums. So that was, if there was a game to play for that, that's the one I was focused on for many, many years because that's where the legacy ends up being. That's where the history ends up. Um, And that's where somebody in a couple of hundred years will come and see your work next to other works that it references and then really decipher what the story is behind the work. That was, that is you know, my ambition, basically. In fact, the show coming up in the Bronx is called Codex. It's literally a show of pieces that, if you can decipher, give you the codex to unlocking the work. You know, so um, that's sort of the lane, you know, You're the talking... way I promote, to, or the way that I, I have sort of approached uh, getting the work out there. Well, y- y- I feel like there you're really talking about the work, and I've had artists talk about the interpersonal things Mm. that you have to do and Mm. the gallery shows that you have to show up at and the people you have to know and impress and the the personality that you have to put across to certain people to seem like an important artist and yeah yeah Mm. you know i've spent a lot of time talking to people who i like when i go to those things i find the people i like over time those relationships end up being you know, the kind of thing that promotes a career as opposed to being like, I'm just going to wear some flashy clothes tonight and make some noise in this space so everyone recognizes and remembers me. That's just not my way. We all have our way. Um, I think that's important for artists, especially for young artists, to realize, too, that there's not one prescriptive uh, agenda that you have to portray to do this thing. I mean, you got to understand, 30, 40 years ago, there was, to be hanging out with collectors was seen as the the worst thing you could possibly do as an artist. Like, fuck those guys. We're not hanging out with them. We're artists. We're holed up in our studio or at the bar or whatever, but we don't cross the tracks. And now you have generations that that's all you want to do is be hanging out with these people. And you've got the collectors don't want to hang out with them. So, you know, there's an interesting dance that happens. It also seems like, you know, before, like, the Warhol era, Mm -hmm. maybe before... The, you would never explain your art. You would say mm-hmm. cryptic things about it. Mm-hmm. And now, 
being able to put that context on your work mm -hmm. and help people see the deeper layers in it seems really important and part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it is, um, for me it is, you know, and I've battled with it too, to be honest with you. Um, I've been blessed and cursed with the ability to talk about my work. Um, and the reason I say it could be a curse is because I don't want to over-explain the work. I want the work to still have some mystique and mystery as well. But I also want my work to be seen by people who aren't always necessarily art world conoscenti, so they may not know all that stuff. And I feel that it is important to talk to them. I like to talk to people in the neighborhood where I grew up in, you know, off of Crenshaw in Los Angeles who don't go to, you know, uh, LACMA all the time. I want them to understand what's going on in the work, so I do have to be able to speak to them. Um, yeah. Does it change, does it shape what you do knowing that white people are the primary audience who will find the work because that's primarily who goes to galleries and museums? Um, well, I think the museum offers an opportunity because as all these places are fighting to get viewers in, they're having to change and use different strategies to try to open their doors to people who may not come in. And the more artists of color who are showing in those places are automatically bringing more people of color to see the work. And I think some of the stories can unfold better in that situation. And that has changed in my lifetime. I've seen that changing. It's still slow, but it's changing. Um, and, you know, same thing with, like, the acceptance of black film mm -hmm. in other markets where mm -hmm. before people thought no one's going to be interested in that story in China, let's say. And now people are, right? All of a sudden, oh, it's just a story and anybody will want to come see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm being optimistic when I say that, but I do make work with that in mind. Um, and I still think that I'm making the audience for my work is anyone who's willing to come see it and be challenged by it. I mean, I think about, you know, go back to Fat Albert, go back to BAM, um, you know, which really rely heavily on black culture mm -hmm. and the feeling that you have as a black person and perhaps white people will come to those works understanding less of what you're talking about. They didn't necessarily grow up watching Fed Albert. Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby was not necessarily an icon in their household where mm -hmm. their parents were like, oh my God, he was so funny since before you were born. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to like the feeling they may get from watching bullets hit a black sculpture is not the same that we are getting. Absolutely. So I just wonder how it shapes you as an artist that, the primary audience may or may not be getting the joke. Well, I think art, contemporary art, conceptual art, has always been couched in sort of, you know, insider jokes and obscure references. Um, I see my work as no different, but I do see my work code switching in a way that others doesn't. There is one way the art historian and the art world will look at it, and there is another way that a brother or sister off the street may look at it. And I embrace that. Um, you know, it's like listening to a good P-Funk album, you know? Everyone on the dance floor is going to shake their ass to it, but those people who are listening to it with their headphones who know what those side remarks and all the chuckling in the background and when George Clinton says this and Bootsy says that, you know, they get the deeper understanding. There's like deep science happening in that music, <laughs> lyrically, sonically, temporally. And what it means to be a black man on stage wearing a dress or a diaper. Or a diaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And But, but you know, Frank Zappa could do it. Why not? You know mm -hmm, what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that stuff is in relationship. Those cats knew. You know, Zappa knew what was going on. 
George knew what was going on. So, you know, it's code switching and, you know, pushing the pushing the envelope. What's the difference between a good artist and a great artist? <laughs> um, wow. A good artist you could admire and get a few tricks and tactics from. Mm. A great artist makes you want to go right back to the lab. You could barely finish the show. Fuck the dinner afterwards. I'm going to work. That's a great artist. Because you're inspired or because you're like, fuck. All the above. <laughs> you don't know what to do with it. That's it. You know, the great artist, the great art is the ineffable, you know, where you're just sort of like, ah, 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 you're stuck. You don't know where to go, how to respond to it. You just know that you got to go get something out and hopefully get to that level of, of profundity. Can you name some folks who've done that to you? Recently, perhaps, made you go, fuck the dinner. I got to go back to the work. Um, you know, Hammonds definitely does that for me. Um, Hammonds, hell yeah. Um, I, I, oh, my God. I'm, oh, I saw a show the other day. Uh, John Mason, um, who passed away in his 90s, like around a year or two ago. Ceramicist. Um, but just beautiful, silent, elegant work that's also defying so many of the properties of ceramics and the technology that he had to embed in that work to even have it do what it does structurally was one of those moments where I was like, damn, I got to go back to work because there's a lot more that meets the eye in that work. You know, there was a lot more happening. Um, yeah, I'm sure I'll think of somebody else before our conversation time, but that yeah, came right going. to the top. Of David Hammonds is somebody who folks in your generation continually mention as like, damn, like he's a seems to be a huge mm. influence on so Terry like, Atkins. Terry Atkins is another. Yeah. Um, you know, these guys are just masters. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. What you were about to say? No, about just Dave? just well, just Hammond's in I'm, I'm not surprised that was the first name you said. Yeah. Because he seems to be a big influence on a lot of artists in your generation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's see, for me, it's beyond the work. It's the attitude as well. And it's sort of his personal evolution as a creator and his dealings with the art world and against the art world and through the art world that I also look at it as um, very significant. Mm. What's the hardest thing you've overcome? Hmm. Overcome. Let's see. I mean, I think <laughs> the powers that be that people are still interested in seeing the stuff that I make, <laughs> you know, that I can spend so many hours in a studio and put it out and some people still want to see it and they're still surprised and it takes them on a journey and a different journey each time they see a new piece. Um, I don't know, that's not, I know that's not necessarily an overcoming thing, but it's sort of a, uh, something I feel that is an impetus and a source of inspiration for me in the studio. Um, Overcomes also to make a living doing this thing. You know, once again, I taught for years. You know, I came out of grad school teaching. Um, and to finally get to a point where I don't necessarily have to teach to make the work that I do. And I could still flex those various muscles as an artist and I don't have to make one specific thing. That was something to overcome. That definitely wasn't overcome because for decades, 
everyone's in my ear telling me, you got to make one thing. Why don't you just make 10 more of those, 15 more of those? I mean, friends, colleagues, uh, dealers, collectors. Don't make 10 different, don't have 10 lanes, have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. um, Why did you reject that advice? Because the work drives the whole thing. And the work comes out of me like that. I don't conscientiously say, I'm just going to make a painting over here and a sculpture over here and then this over here. I get the idea and then I generate the piece. Um, and like I said, over years, over decades, they start to form their own series. And I think thematically they are all still very much linked. What and some, I want to I challenge people's perception of that, you know, what an artistic journey should be. Some folks would think of you in a purely aesthetic, artistic context, but you are running a business. Um, so what are some of the keys to having a successful art practice business? Mm. Um, for me personally, work with people you like. Sure. You know, um, surround yourself by artists that inspire you and that also are going through some of the same struggles aesthetically and personally or business-wise as you, so you can help each other, build a community um, of people who could support and a network that can introduce you to other people that can support and push your career and your work, um, including curators, largely, dealers, collectors, and so on. Is there a thought like, so, you know, this sort of piece could fetch this amount, so we need to do that, let's do more of that, we can only make one of these, so we can only make that much out of this six or 12 month period. I, I read about Jeff Koons mm-hmm. had a very ex- a show that was very expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. It was very unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. That put him in some financial trouble until he did something else that was incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, with him in particular, it really stands out that he's making toys for rich people. <laughs> now there's anything wrong with that. I love his work, mm-hmm. but it's just really underlined that mm-hmm. that's that's the game that you are playing. Um, yeah. I don't get that sense from you, but is there what is there a financial consideration in terms of? Yeah, there has been. You know, there's been pieces that I want to experiment with. New, you know, different technologies and materials that definitely uh, require a much higher budget than other pieces. Um, and you sort of work incrementally to get there. You do as many cheap versions of the mock-ups as you can until you have an opportunity to dump some money on the bigger thing. Um, over time, if you have the right relationships with people, uh, you might find someone who's willing to pitch in and help you with this part in exchange for this thing. You know, you have to find ways to do it. I also believe, um, you know, Always go back to your community, I, you know, your community of people, of artists and your network of friends. They will, you'll find people who can help you figure some things out. There might be barters and trades you can make with other fabricators and artists that can even help you realize a work that otherwise you might not be able to. So you have to be resourceful. That's a huge part of it. I mean, as anyone, any entrepreneur or anyone running a business will tell you, and very specifically a creator, you've got to be resourceful as hell. Are you, or how involved are you in setting the price for your pieces? Um, You're with Marianne Boski. Boski, very famous head. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, 
Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash thrivemarket.com slash On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Basquiat, right? Back in the no, day. No, that was Mary, Mary Boone. Excuse me, mm-hmm. excuse me. Mm-hmm. Marion Boski's still A-list mm-hmm. gallerist. Is she like, okay. It's a conversation. It's I could sell that for this or you kind of. Well, it's a conversation. It's one thing to sell a piece for a certain amount. It's more important to have some consistency and some uh, growth in the market, in your market as an artist overall. Um, so to fetch just one willy-nilly high price that could affect everything else subsequently is not the best idea. Um, so it's a conversation. And, you know, you have to talk to, once again, talk to people who might know a little bit more about that, have more experience with that to sort of figure out the best way to proceed with it. Everyone has a different approach, though, it does seem. You know, there's, you ask any artist, they might have a different way they want to go about it. But I, coming from being very museum focused, I, I play a long game, you know. So is the Fat Albert piece? I'm sorry, I keep coming back to that, but it really sticks out of my head. <laughs> Can we call him Fatal Bert? Excuse me, Fatal Bert. Is Fatal Bert in... Oh, no, oh now I just... See, it took me a while. Now I just realized you moved the Al to the first. You see? Okay, you see? see? Took me a minute. Now yeah, I got there. I got there. Okay, I got there. I got okay. there. Never what it seems, man. Is Fatal Bert living in somebody's <laughs> house? Is it in a museum? Um, there are two Fatal Berts in the world. There's okay. a smaller version and a larger version. And I'm very happy to say the smaller one, which was first shown, and the smaller one is large too, so don't get me wrong. But um, the small one uh, was collected, and I won't mention his name because sure. some people don't like that, of course. Sure. But it was um, purchased by a black collector. So when there was all that brouhaha about how this was catering to a white audience and all that stuff, people really didn't do their research because the person who collected it was a black collector. So I felt like all the insider jokes and, and dialogue within that piece were purchased by someone who actually understood it and does lend it out and knows how it needs to live out in the world. He lends it out mm-hmm. to museums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a coup for me. In that situation, do you like at some point go to his house just to advise him or make sure that 
you want to make sure that it has enough space. You want to make sure that the generator has. Did, mm -hmm. did. Yeah, no, we talk we talk semi regularly because um, he he collects a lot of artists and he takes advice from artists that he collects and likes on who else that he might want to collect. And he's also thinking long term legacy. You know, there's a lot of black collectors that are coming up right now that are doing the same thing. So it's not just white folks who are buying all this work, which I think is very important. Um, to know and anyone listening to the show, if you got the money to buy black art and you happen to be black, do that. <laughs> Hell yeah. Do that. You don't want the same thing to happen to jazz as <laughs> like it had to true, jazz. You know, come true. on. Where do you feel pressure in your work life? Time management, you know, with a, a young child and Two a family and having to go between New York and Los Angeles where um, my father and part of my family live to you know, be present and deal with family stuff. I feel pressure there. There's also pressure to create and make good work. You know, I constantly challenge myself and I never rest comfortably in any of the lanes I work in. So, um, you know, I'm one of my harshest critics and I'm extremely driven. Uh, so that is a lot of pressure <laughs> put on myself. And then the demand of uh, keeping up with showing and exhibiting schedules, you know, and travel to make those work and trying to uh, put together the right team to facilitate all the things that need to be uh, happening and paid attention to. I have a theory that, you know, deep down, deep down in your real emotional well, everyone is either sad, angry, or scared. Mm. Does that fit with you? Um... Sad, angry, or scared. I think I've gone through different periods of my life when I felt different parts of those. Um, anger, not so much, thankfully. Um, you know, I have been very deeply involved with Buddhism for decades now, and anger is not one that I get stuck on too much. Mm -hmm. It comes in quick flashes, but it doesn't last, doesn't linger. Fear, yeah, fear, caution more so, or maybe a bit of anxiety. Um, that happens. Um, uh, I worry about the fate of the world. I worry about humanity or the lack thereof. Those things deeply bother me. Do you worry about your legacy and the way that each piece that you've made and each piece you will made is a part of shaping that? Um, I've thought about it. I don't get too stuck on it now. Um, and I think that Buddhism has helped with that um, to not be too attached because there's no way I can control where any of this is going to go. So um, the legacy I'm most concerned about now, I think, is probably familial <laughs> legacy more so than object legacy. Mm. But hopefully both will persist. Mm. Um, how have you grown as an artist what can you do now? What can you communicate now that you couldn't have 10 or 20 years ago? That's a great question. I think I'm growing as an artist right now. Um, I think I'm learning to let a lot of things go, try to be a little bit more fluid in the studio, you know what I mean? Not get too hung up, not get too precious about things. Um, have more confidence in 
well, I was going to say in making mistakes better, but instead realizing they have not really that many mistakes, you know, and having some comfort with those things that I can't control and would previously consider mistakes and now realizing that that's just what's supposed to happen and finding some ease with that. Um, I think having, uh, you know, my daughter has helped me work faster mm. and be less precious as well because she's dope. <laughs> you know I mean, she doesn't get hung up on any of it. And I'm like, I got to learn that. So there's always room. There's always room to grow. What's it like when you're in the studio? I mean, like you, you do so many different things artistically. I imagine there's not, you can never fall into a routine. That's been hard. Um, the paintings, the quilts have been the most routine I've ever been as an artist. And that was one of the reasons I started doing them is I needed something that I can anchor myself in every time I walk into the studio. Because prior to that, it's every time I walk in the studio, it's a blank slate. What am I going to do? What am I going to make? And consequently, I wouldn't be in the studio that much because I'd be out in the world trying to get the inspiration and then only go to the studio to implement once I got the idea. When I started doing uh, working on the quilts, that sort of allowed me to have more of a daily routine. Um, but as I've been able to get a larger studio and put all the different bodies of work together, that has created, I mean, that's changed everything for me. Because now I can see how all those different projects are informing each other. Um, and it makes that gives me some feeling of anxiety about time. Like, I just want more time to see where all of this, to get it all to, like, do this weird thing together that I can't see and predict yet. Um, but not bifurcated anymore, more integral. Do you go to the studio every day? Um, I have personally not been, in, well, I've been in the studio, but... I feel like I have not been making right now for almost two months. I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of sketching, um, a lot of research, but not actually physically making uh, for around two months. And that's probably the longest amount of time that I've done in my last uh, six or seven years. Um, I also realized like in a week and a half, I'm going to go back in and not see the light of day for probably six months. <laughs> so... Um, I'm basking in this moment of giving myself permission not to make something. Do you and, know? Do you know what you want to make next? Yeah, um, you know, one of the upcoming shows is a solo with uh, with with Boski opening in um, late or early May. So I'm making works for that, and there'll be some three dimensional quilt pieces that I've been working on lately, and some new marble sculptures that I've been working on. And a large sort of wall painting installation. And right now, the reason I'm not physically making is because I'm trying to let all those elements gel into a picture in my head. So that when I go to the studio, I'm on task. I'm making as opposed to trying to figure out all that, the confluence of those ideas. Mm. Do you have goals, artistic goals for yourself for the next like five years? What you want to do? Where you want to go? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely do. I definitely do. Um, you know, I have this, um, performance project called Moon Medicine, mm -hmm. uh, which is a music-based project that I do with, uh, Martin Luther, Jahi Sundance, Mark Hines, Andre Simone. Um, and we've been performing together for around five years now. We just did the Kennedy Center. We played Lincoln Center a few years ago. But really putting some more attention on creating new material for that, that project. 
and integrating that more into my exhibitions, not just as the band performing, but more in installation-based situations, uh, maybe VR, maybe performative vignettes that the band doesn't perform, but other people actually perform. Really conceptualizing and pushing what it means to sort of have an art rock band right now. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. That's powerful. Um, what is... I mean, you started talking about this a little bit before, but what has money afforded you that you didn't have before? Um, <laughs> you're assuming I have that much money, I, <laughs> and I appreciate that. But um, <laughs> uh, well, I think this actually goes back to the previous question. One of the goals I have, I mean, I, I want the art ranch, thought you know, that art farm, someplace where it's nice and quiet, and I can just be for days at a time, you know. And, and and just exist like that, not have to deal with like the day to day of city life. Um, but what it has of you know, it's given me more space. The space was the important thing for me. It's like li literally physical space to see all my work coexist, um, because that informs what's going to be made moving forward. That's the biggest thing to me, um, and some degree of um, security for the family. Yeah, basic stuff. Yeah. yeah. So. What in you has led to the success that you've had? Uh, persistence, I think. Um, like I said, I'm highly driven, and I'm driven by the creative process more so than the rewards of that creative process. And I've been doing it since I was a teenager, so it's nothing that came to me you know, later in the game that I had to fashion myself into. Um, it's more just really a, a deep part of me. Um, yeah. Were your, you wanted to be an artist early on. Mm -hmm. Were your parents like, they don't make any money? They said that a little bit. They said that a little bit. My father uh, you know, was a neurosurgeon and my mother was a school teacher for a while before she had three kids and became a full-time mom. Um, my sister is... Uh, if it's uh, OBGYN, my brother is an organic and biochemistry tutor. So I have nothing but medicine and science around me. However, my brother- M Mom is, was a science teacher? Uh, she was, No, she was an English teacher. Okay, okay. Um, my brother is a science teacher. But um, my brother was also in a band. He played bass. That, that's how I got deep into music. My sister started the first black um, dance company at Harvard when she was an undergrad. So And you're the baby. And I'm the baby, yeah. So they all had a creative, you know- outlet that they that was pretty serious to them so i was getting in a lot of trouble when i was a teenager in la i was doing graffiti you know getting busted for stealing spray paint and you know graphing up on walls in la and art was always something that you know i would come home and just lock the door and just paint and draw for hours so i was really into it and my parents at a certain point said you know what we just got to let him see this thing through because if not he's going to be running wild in the streets and then I got asked to do a solo exhibition when I was like 16 in the lobby of my high school, <laughs> which was cool because, you know, it was a weird thing. I just got a call from the principal, you know, called into the principal's office and said, you know, we, we'd like for you to do this thing. I don't know where it came from, but it was sort of like a sign, basically. Like somebody's actually paying attention to what you're doing and people are responding to it. So that started a long trajectory of just working. There's know? a lot of graffiti artists who become fine artists we had fab five freddy on the show oh yeah 
Uh, yeah, you know that's my, you know we shared a studio together for years. You and Fab. Yeah, I love Fred. Um, yeah, Fab's my man. Talk a little bit about your graffiti days. I mean, <laughs> it sounded like you were stealing cans from the yeah. store and like hop, you know climbing up on walls and stuff. Climbing up on walls, sneaking out of the house with a duffel bag. I saw Wild Style, you know, when it was shown at one independent theater back in L.A. when it first played in L.A. and I was struck. I was smitten. You know, I had to get my fat shoelaces. I started breakdancing, started scratching, and started doing graffiti. All in hip-hop culture. All in, deep. Did you try to rap too? Um, No, not so much. That was never my thing, surprisingly enough. Um, But, yeah, yeah, the graffiti, yeah, riding on the back of the bus, hanging off the side of the RTD and trying to tag my name on it. What was your tag? Midas. (laughs) M-I-D-A-S? Uh-huh. And going to Pan Pacific Park and doing graffiti there and... Uh, you Did know, you have a crew? I had a crew. What was the crew? The double OCA, out of control artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many people were in the crew? Uh, it was, uh, I think it was like five of us. Okay. Yeah. Still um, friends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of us are still friends. Did any of them become artists? No, some have become politicians. Some have, uh, one is an athlete, a professional fencer. Oh, shit. Um, I'm the only one who stayed in the arts, actually. Oh, no, another one is an actor. Um, but so the rest. Who do you know? Um, I can't mention. Oh, it's secretive. I, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, were you nice with the tagging? I was. I was the nicest in the crew. <laughs> I'm sure they all say the same, though. But I, I was the nicest in the crew. I'm the, I'm the one still doing it, so there you right, go. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Did you, like, get up a lot? No, no, not that much. You, did you have a name in L.A.? No. No one would ever remember remember me at all. No, um, I got a couple of Polaroids of some of those pieces, but it's so funny. I was recently in L.A. and I ran into um, Risk, Risk Rock, uh, Risk from um, at that time the West Coast artist WCA was the big big crew, and you know he's still a legend. So I mean, he and Shepard Ferry, they they all still do their thing. Um, but we were talking and reminiscing about the old days and all that stuff. So that was pretty cool. I did that once because I grew up in Boston, so that wasn't a thing in mm. Boston, right? Mm-hmm. But um, when I was in my early to mid-20s, and I was writing a little for The New Yorker, and I met um, this graffiti artist, and he was like, well, why don't you come bomb with us? Like, I, I interviewed him for something, and he mm-hmm. was like, yeah, you know, we go to the train yards mm-hmm. sometimes. You know? And I, so I told The New Yorker, like, I'm going to write this piece where I go out to the train yards and do a thing. And they're like, okay, that sounds great. So it was like three in the morning or something. We like mm-hmm. cut the wire and went into the train <laughs> yard where the trains just sit. And we like uh, did some things on the inside of the train. I could mm-hmm. not really control the can. So mm-hmm. my thing was a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was like somebody was coming. So he had to like lay down on the floor mm-hmm. of the train, yeah, and I and it started to move, right? Like they just, just automated, <laughs> like it couldn't have like gone anywhere. It's like the you know, the computer started moving it. We we're like, what the fuck? And then we like you know like scrambled out of there at like six in the morning, and the, like it was like this crazy tagging adventure. Mm-hmm. It was like oh, that was crazy, you know. And they yeah, were man. like, this is our life. We do this. It's the shit. Hey, it's like a drug, to be honest with you. It is. It's a total adrenaline rush. It's like, you know, you're a rebel, you're a rebel with a cause, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think about it like 
like if you like snuck into the museum at night and painted <laughs> your painting like like while the security guards weren't watching mm-hmm. and then left and it's like <laughs> Oh wow! Like like that would kind of start to approximate. So you know, be like not just like a nice studio experience, but like the adrenaline of like yeah. sneaking, getting up where you're not supposed to be, and like. Well, it's also the culture because every day, other artists who know that life are looking at those walls. You know, L.A. is a driving city, so you already know when you're at this corner that you're going to look to the left, or this corner you look to the right, or you look down this alley. Or if you're on foot, walking down certain alleys to see who was there the last week. So, you know, it was like, yeah, a constantly evolving installation. And then who's going to cap or cover somebody else's work? It was all Did you cover people? Never. Never. Respectful. Do you want to get into fights? No, I mean, luckily that didn't happen too much. But I started to get out because the gang thing just got so big in the 80s in L.A. that it was a blurry line at a certain point. Um, and so the, some graph kids just went straight gangster. And at that point, you know, guns were popping up and people were getting shanked. <laughs> Going no, out at me. night. Getting, yeah, I'm so, good with that. I was like, Grandpa, that's enough. When I think about the last century plus of art, I feel like, you know, you had Deschamp who really, you know, set a lot of the rules and a lot of the game for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. Picasso took it to another level. Um, you know, Warhol, who set a lot. Um, but when I think about, like, the modern era, I feel like Banksy is really hmm. important in setting, you know, n- new standards, new areas of game, new mm-hmm. sort of, like you know, like, we'll look back at one point and say, okay, like, Banksy was creating uh, the culture the way that Warhol created the culture. What do you think mm-hmm. about... Um, that and his work and his impact on on society and culture? Well, I mean, I think he is an interesting person because he bridges the whole concept. I mean, the art world didn't really want to deal with him for a very long time. You know, you know how the art world is. Um, but the cult, you know, he is... Shit, man, if you, if you might buy his shit at auction oh, and yeah, that moment he destroys it, you may not... Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Even though that makes it more valuable, but still, like this is this is a, this is a, like, a chaotic element. Yeah. Like, how do we deal? Yeah, but I mean, you know, fifteen years ago, you wouldn't even think of him being in that auction. Right. So that right. just sort of shows you how things have shifted. Right. So I mean, but you know, when I think about the people who are probably making or have made huge impacts right now, I think of like Bruce Nauman or even Mike Kelly. There's a show of Mike Kelly up in Chelsea right now. Just you know, one aspect of his career, but. You know, um, some of these artists just put things down. It takes years for people to even get on the level of what they've been doing to figure it out. And that's what's most exciting to me. You know, Warhol, you sort of knew about the phenomenon when he was around. Banksy, you know about the phenomenon when they're around. But once these people are gone and you're going back through history and and precedence and you say, wait a second, this name keeps popping up. I haven't really fully explored that. And then you realize that they influence everyone around them. That's Really the most exciting thing. Yeah. Yeah, to me. To me as an artist. I feel like you're very cool, right? And and I say that to say, I I don't know if I see like you having that moment in the studio where you're sort of pulling your hair out and you're like, ah, like how am I gonna make this what it is in my head? Oh, it's not coming out right. Come on, Sam, get your shit oh, together. Man. And like, do you have those moments Shh, where you're Man, freaking- it gets so brutal in the studio. It's all pain in the studio. <laughs> it is all pain. Tell me about it. 
<laughs> Days with no sleep, losing weight, joint cramps, um, panic moments where I'm like, this thing sucks. And then I'm going to do something rash to it. And now I'm really fucked because like, I don't know what's going to happen with this piece anymore. And then I look back at my pictures of what I did three weeks ago on the same piece. I was like, man, it was done three weeks ago. What did I just do? I just killed this thing. So now I got to dig myself out of the hole and I got a deadline. And the shippers are coming. And I'm not going to sleep for another three nights. Yeah. Oh, it's all pain. That's why I'm so cool when I'm not in the studio. Because <laughs> <laughs> the studio is so hard. It is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Even, it's rough. I mean, that's another reason I'm like, I haven't made anything in <laughs> two, two months. Because I know when I go back and close that door, oh, my God. That's when it starts. Because, I mean, and that's just at the fabrication level. I mean, like at the conception level, <laughs> you're like ripping your hair out and throwing. I write my ideas down so that if I ever hit a lull, I could try to go back and, you know, spark some type of uh, inspiration. Um, it's the fabrication. It's the making of stuff. That's the hard thing. Because materials don't want to respond to you. You know, they want to fight back. And you have to learn how to dance with them. Um, that's the whole mastery thing. You know, these things don't happen overnight. It takes a while to get good at this stuff. Um, and when you're reinventing your, your own will every now and then, it's 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 painstaking. Yeah. 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 I mean, no, I mean, the, the studio, it, it's, it's a very solitary place for me. I'm not the kind to have people hanging out at the studio. I've had to learn to let people into the studio just for sanity. But for me, it's a very closed door, pulling out the hair and going through the whole, the whole, the pain of it all. Yeah. The pain of it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. What's the most painful moment? Oh, man, I had one last summer. I had one. I was getting ready for a show. Um, and I just wasn't satisfied with the piece that was supposed to go into it. I pulled the piece. Literally, it was supposed to be shipped out the next day or I was supposed to fly out the next day. And I just freaked out. I was like, that can't go. That can't go. I'm sorry. There's going to be one less piece in this show than I promised. And I hate to go back on my promise as an artist and as a business person. But this time I was like, no, I just can't. I can't do it. I wasn't feeling the piece. And it sat on my wall for another three or four months. And then there was another show. Took the same piece, rotated it. Two or three marks. I was like, holy shit. It's now one of my favorite pieces. Really? That but little? That little. It was all there. But in the panic and in the heat of it all, I couldn't get enough distance from it. I couldn't see some logical things that could make the thing work. I was so caught up in my own shit. I couldn't see it. Um, but thankfully, instead of trying to just push it out there and not feeling good about it, I held on to it a bit longer. And now it's one of the pieces that literally is pushing me to the next level of, of, of that project. Mm. You know? Sometimes you don't realize how much psychic pain Mm -hmm. you're in i used to go to jamaica to work on whatever book mm -hmm. i was trying to drive through at that point and i remember when i was trying to get to my novel and i'd done like half of it so i really had to take stock of like what have i done before what have i done after this midpoint and make sure that it all makes sense and all the characters are mm -hmm. making sense i kind of like wrote out this epic outline that was 
basically the whole book mm. in outline and you're trying to hold the whole thing in your mind at the same time. And it was like really psychically hard. And it was like two in the morning and I'm looking at this outline and I'm trying to hold it all in head once in the head at once so I could see if it all makes sense. And there was this, and I was staying at Rock House, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and this cat came up on the windowsill and I swore it was talking to me. <laughs> and it was like, like the, the, the secondary mind was like, you know, it's not speaking English. Right. But the primary mind was like, did you hear what it just said? <laughs> you know, it just, I, I'm not making this up. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Look, it just said words to me. And then the second mind was like, no, you're losing your fucking mind because mm -hmm. you're doing so much with this. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Oh wow, yeah, you're probably right. But look, but look what it just said. It just said my name. Mm -hmm. What do you want from me? Um, and that's was like the pain of like you're in fully enmeshed in it, and like it. I didn't even feel pain, but I realized, oh, you are. This is probably what they say when they're saying you're losing your mind. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> this mm -hmm. is that. Oh yeah, yep. And that shit happens. You know, but the thing about it, as as brutal as it is. I thrive on it, you know? If it doesn't hurt, it ain't worth it. You know what I mean? You, you sort of have to go all, through that. You haven't gone all the way. You haven't gone all the way, you know? Um, it's, 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 it's a mania. You gotta feel the mania. I often would say that to my students. I'm like, if you really wanna succeed in this shit, you gotta have the mania. You gotta be willing to do that. You feel the mania like all the time? I mean, like when you get like for each piece, you have to like go to the nth degree and feel the mania. At some point, yeah, nothing's easy. Nothing's nothing's ever come easy. You know, once you figure some things out, you can replicate and you know evolve within that project with a little less of the pain. But to get to that point in the project, for me, yeah, it's the mania. Mm. Mm. So that's one of my goals is to be a little healthier with it because mm -hmm. you know <laughs> just a little healthier, a little healthier. But mm -hmm. you need, yeah, you know, but you need that. You need it, yeah. And it's like squeezing your head to yeah. like get the ideas out. And if it's the simple idea, somebody else could have come up with it. Absolutely. But if you go, Pixar has this twenty rules for storytellers, and they're like, throw out your first idea, throw out your second, third, fourth idea, mm -hmm. your fifth idea, that might be good enough because mm -hmm. uh, then you won't think about the easy obvious shit you don't ever want like well i knew when she opened the door her mother would be there mm -hmm. like you right. know and those movies always delight and surprise in the, in the right way and like mm -hmm. oh well this is why the stories are so interesting for adults and children mm -hmm. that you don't go for your first idea yep yep yeah so in all this work what do you want people to think of you what do you want them to say about you? That he was dope. <laughs> you know, I can honestly say, I, you know, I know there's the whole cult of personality as an artist. And, you know, I'm a fairly confident individual as a human in the world and on the street. And that's fine. You can know me as that person. But when it comes to the art, that's the thing that I do. And that's way outside of what you might see walking on the street. So I don't need that kind of recognition where people like Sanford Biggers, oh, oh, oh. I'd rather them be like, this work is dope. Oh shit, he made it? He's dope. That's about it. You know, I want the work to do the transcendent stuff. I don't want it to be all tied up necessarily in just a Sanford Biggers thing, mm. you know? 
I feel like I feel confident enough to let the work do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, I always ask everybody, what's your superpower? What is the 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 thing that you do that has helped propel you to all that you've done? Mm, probably going with the seventh or eighth idea. <laughs> you know, I never go with the first three or four ideas. Never. I never have. Uh, blessing and curse once again. Um, in that sense, it's never been easy. But I'm used to that, so I don't ever expect it to be easy. Um, with the work, an easy read to me is a failure for my personal work. Yeah. You know, I want it to be complicated. I want this to be a puzzle. And I want you to have to sift through multiple histories and, you know, emotions to get through it to glean things from it. And then hopefully the person next to you gets something totally different and you guys can talk about that and blow each other's mind. Thanks so much to Sanford for an awesome interview and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Jerry Michael Smith, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montez, and Jason Reynolds. I appreciate you guys. Join us over at patreon.com slash show for more from Sanford and an extra episode every Friday only for Patreon subscribers. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Show. Tory Show is written by me, Torrey, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday and on Friday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.